Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Podcast. To find out more about the Worklife Hub and to listen to other episodes, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Hub Podcast. I am your host, Agnes Uheretsky. If this is the first time that you are tuning in, let me just say a few words about this podcast. We speak to authors, researchers, business thought leaders, for them to share their knowledge and insight on work-life balance, leadership, culture change and organizational development. In our work at the Worklife Hub, we help companies reform their workplace to create a culture that embraces diversity and work-life balance. We are passionate about building vibrant and engaging workplaces that are great for employees and customers. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can do this via Twitter at WorkLifeHub, on our LinkedIn page or on our website. We're always happy to hear how you like the podcast or any other ideas that you would like to share with us. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the listeners of the Work Life Hub podcast. This is another episode in uh, December 2015, and I'm extremely excited to be uh, joined by Professor Ellen Ernst Kosek. She is a thought leader and the change agent on how to innovate in the workplace to leverage gender and diversity and adapt human resource strategy. She is currently Professor of Management and Research Director at the Butler Center for Leadership at the Purdue University. And her main areas of research and consultancy and, and writing and speaking are on work-life effectiveness, work-life balance, leadership, talent management of diversity and gender. And the list goes on and we could fill probably the whole podcast of me just reading out uh, the work of uh, Professor Cossack. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. You're also the author of the book, CEO of Me, Creating a Life that Works in the Flexible Job Age. And I would like to maybe drill down to some of this uh, because you've been involved for so long in this and also employer relationship. But how do you see it now outfolding? You know, is this how is the responsibility shared between employees and employers to create these kind of opportunities of work flexibility and career advancement and healthy workplaces. Well, I, I love the way that you phrase that, that it is a shared responsibility. I think what is being sorted out right now is the interplay between public policies across countries and states in terms of a, a floor or a minimum, such as what is the minimum maternity leave? What is the minimum paternity leave? What is the minimum right to request a flexible schedule legally? And then the implementation is being done by employing organizations. And there's such variation across employers in how much this is viewed as part of a, a competitive strategy to enhance the quality workforce and a compassionate strategy to be an employer in the community that adds to the well-being of employees, families, and society. And then on the employee side, uh, employees now have more choice on paper than ever before to think about possibilities of combining a career with family or men being involved more in caregiving 
but the challenges in this bad economy globally, uh, there you know some nations are having good economies, but overall we're still not a hundred percent out of this global recession, and so employees may fear that they can't uh, ask or use, and so I think part of this is employees and employers developing trust and a common agreement about how to best support each other, how to get the work done and be a, a, a good place to, you know, have a business that survives and how to support employees as whole people. So it's really this dance on a tightrope right now. And there are also a lot of these shifting tectonic plates because everything became so complex. So I guess the strategies that were motivated by perhaps bringing more women or bringing in talent have now been also influenced by the digital, the global race for talent, um, health awareness on the workplace. So it's much more complex, right? And and somehow it also seems that it can go uh, towards leadership, it can go into culture, it can go into gender strategy. So it what if anything, it became more confusing to navigate work-life policies. Would you agree? I would agree a lot. And I think, on the one hand, the trends that you just described, leadership, globalization, blurring of work-life boundaries, technology, that's really exciting because that's mainstreaming how we work and how we relate to employees as whole people as part of our employment strategy. On the other hand, it could mean that work life gets buried and is a meaningless word. And uh, as we know, as professionals, many of your listeners, uh, you can have what I call the flexibility con where you can work 24 seven, the flexibility to work all the time. And, and we've become addicted to our work emails and things. So uh, in the one hand, the opportunities, we've never had more than any before. On the other hand, there's a chance or a problem potentially for the work domain and the public and the private and the family life to become so overlapping that there are no boundaries and uh, that's not good for health or society. And it's hard for organizations to figure out a strategy on uh, what makes sense because people need different things. And it used to be, here's our few policies, everybody works one way. Well, nobody works all the same way anymore because we are all so different in our personal lives and the types of jobs we do. And in your experience from the management point of view, do you would you agree or do you see that there's a risk of this flavor of the month you know, because now there's so much to choose from, so many different perks and benefits and, you know, from meditation rooms and, and somehow it all gets drowned into and, and that it's even more difficult now to make sustainable policies that are going to stay through, you know, changes of CEOs or managers. I love that word sustainability. And I actually have a paper on the sustainability of a work-life organizational change effort And in my dissertation years ago, when I was at Yale University, it was on the idea of human resource innovation in policies. And we called or talked about the Herwiga effect, the here we go again effect for flavor of the month. And so if you just keep adding things on, their perks, you know, now we'll let you freeze your eggs so you in the Silicon Valley can delay when you have children. Well, that looks good on paper. 
but it also might be a policy that so few people end up using because there are intense pressures to work. And so I think we have to go back to culture of the organization mm. and saying we value well-being, we value the career of an employee as a long-term marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. And I don't see this long-term investment in all companies happening, but I I do I do have a lot of companies that I work with or speak in my classes and variation does exist across employers and how much they value employee well-being and work life and that that's what we want to uh, move toward having less variation and more employers seeing the value of this and and not have paper options as you know but real options yeah now I I uh listened to one of your um, previous talks on YouTube and there you talk about culture and policies. And I wanted to ask you about, you know, the chicken or the egg. What comes first? If, if companies say, okay, I recognize I need to do something about this. How, how could they tackle this? Would, would this be a, a first a culture change and then the policies would follow or do they need to set first in place solid policies that are going to change the culture? That's a wonderful question. And I think it's an iterative process and they are so linked because if you don't have policies on paper, people feel that they're breaking norms and are crafting new rules. On the other hand, if you don't have a culture that sees the value of even having work-life policies or experimenting with practices uh, you won't be able to have these policies be implemented. So I think it starts with at the top with leaders uh, saying that work life is part of our employment strategy. And in fact, in a, on surveys where you might employ ask employees, you know, do you feel valued by your organization? Do you have good job fit? Well, work life fit is a core job attribute. So you have leaders that see that as a part of managing people to not burn them out. And then employees have a bottom-up responsibility to uh, help uh, craft or say what kinds of uh, arrangements they think that their groups and teams can help, uh, can most benefit the type of workforce. So say you're in, uh, I, I worked with uh, a bank on a case that I wrote up in an article in California Management Review that just came out on balance flexibility, and it was Northern Trust out of Chicago but they also have offices in London and around the world. And they migrated whole teams to work from home a day a week, in the office a day a week, and then flex it. And that was because they did risk management and saw that the jobs could be done that way. It saved money in downtown London or Chicago or New York, but it also allowed some variation for different employees to say, well, I really like working at home three days a week. And somebody else says, well, I really like just one day. And, and that's where we have to go. It's harder for managers to implement, but in these times of terrorism where you don't want to shut down the office, you want people to keep working or in times of long commutes and people want different things. And in some people in big cities might not have a big apartment to be able to work at home. So I think it's tricky Bottom line is, what's the goal? 
The goal is to retain employees, not burn them out, allow them to have a work life, and the business has a goal to keep talent and get the work done and, and be successful. Uh, yes, and you also mentioned terrorism, and, and I think uh, probably also climate change yes. is going to be um, where we see crazier and crazier climate patterns that are going to be also influencing you know, where and how uh, employees can get to work. Now, I wanted to ask you also something about um, another uh, publication of yours, again, linking back to the sustainable workforce, where you talk about this new phenomena about multiple jobs and you call them mosaic, mosaic careers. And, and that's what we see as a trend of, of um, uh, the contingent workforce, the gig economy. How do you see that developing? Do you see that somehow creeping into the work-life discourse? And what could be a policy response to that? That's another great question, and it really talks about how the economic changes are shifting and, and crafting these social changes. I think it goes down to choice. And I've studied reduced load work for years, like uh, Deloitte and some of those companies that had where people could vary the pace, the workload of their uh, career and work on part-time but still progress in a career. Uh, what you what the challenge is with the gig economy and some of these contingent jobs is whether it truly is by choice. And when the choice is taken away, we're an employee we really would like predictable hours, predictable income, uh, a longer-term employment relationship, and yet all, the only thing the company's offering is, you know, there's good part-time work or bad part-time work, and they're offering bad part-time work and low job security, that's where this flexibility is not a two-way street. So I think this idea of balance, that it's that you employees need, those that want to work full-time should be able to ramp up to full-time. Those that want at least a, a year commitment or five-year commitment or able to have a career, we need to, we, we're moving away from that. And that's scary to me because employers then, uh, may not feel that they owe somebody the chance to take a paternity leave, maternity leave, or if they're sick or they need mental health services and can only work 30 hours a week, well, then they might not be able to get that job. So who's going to make sure that that we have a longer-term employment relationship where somebody uh, – cares that people are able to use these policies without jeopardy and without stigma. Absolutely. And, and I think also in relation to this is, is quite interesting to observe, for example, in the US, all these initiatives around minimum wage and minimum hourly wage, and then also unionization. Whereas in Europe, we see a dwindling union membership and less and less membership and especially members are older generations so not the currently young parents or millennials or those who come in into this gig economy sharing economy uh, and digital world of work is this is this correct as an observation well i think um you raise a good point about how certain jobs have these benefits or perks and 
And I've actually studied flexibility in unionized workplaces through a grant from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. And we're still writing up one more paper from this. But basically what we found is that if you view your union is promulgating or supporting work-life flexibility as a benefit, you are more likely to think your union is effective. But the Mm -hmm. problem is many uh, unions have uh, liked certain types of flexibility more than others that may not fit the the new workforce completely. So leaves are much easier to put in. They're hard to put in, but from a union perspective, they're easier in that it still keeps everybody a standardized job design because you're just replacing the worker without flexing the hours or the where it's done. And so I, I think long term, uh, I think as unions become more diverse in leadership and membership and younger workers, you will see a shift of flexible schedules, at, say service workers food service workers, hotel workers, those might be some younger, more diverse employees. And that's where I think it's going to happen globally is these if these service workers can unionize around work-life benefits. Mm, that's so true. And I think that's really something that I haven't yet really looked at. Um, the way, you know, some, as you say, some of these measures like leaves are perhaps much easier to be turned into a, a collective policy because it can be just definition of the number of weeks and and some of the, the conditionalities. But what, what I always find contrasts with this is real work-life balance is such a highly individual issue. It depends if you have a sick elderly parent or just young children or teenagers or a very important hobby and you need to negotiate some of these really individual requests for time and and place and have it shift over the course of a career what happens is we label people and we talked about the aging workforce well i think in many companies and in in countries we haven't really figured out how to allow people other than a phased retirement you know to to experiment because it might be that you could create new opportunities for younger people who want to get into the workforce, if you could learn to not force people to retire 100% in a bad economy, but phase out and do an experimental year. And mm-hmm. that might be a way to solve that, you know, it won't completely solve it, but it might be a way to help with the unemployment that's quite high in some countries, particularly in Europe, uh, to get to encourage people uh, to, re- to retire, but I, right now, it's either you have to be full-time or not, and you're not valued. And so a lot of people are hanging around and taking yeah. salaries, that, and yet they still have something to offer, but, you know, maybe they'd want to work part-year, part, you know, part-time. But that, that yeah. we haven't figured that out. And especially going from a full-time career of 30, 40 years, drop off immediately into full-time retirement is also a very important, shocking transition in someone's life. Yeah, and even, I mean, I don't want to get uh, political with the, you know, we had the crisis in Greece, but maybe rather than saying, you know, here's the retirement age for everybody, maybe this could be a compromise to solve some other problems to say, 
you know, if you would you be willing, maybe in these years you could work part time as a way to ease in. If culturally a country has always thought of one age as is when they retire. There are a lot of things. We need to be more flexible in how we think about the mix of career and non-work life as people are aging now. We, we developed these policies. We thought people were going to, you know, retire earlier and then die by the time they're 70. Well, people are living into their 90s. Yeah, and want to stay active. Yeah. And, and I think that also links back to this really big leadership skills gap of how leaders and managers and line managers can manage such a diverse and flexible workforce. And basically this leads us to the last question. And this is the same question we ask to all of our podcast guests on the work life podcast. And it's if, uh, if Alan, you could give uh, just one advice to a CEO to make a change in his or her company, to improve the work-life balance of his or her employees, what would that one advice be? Well, I would have the leaders train and socialize and send messages to managers and leaders below them to first be role models in how they manage their own work lives so employees feel that they can take time off as needed for personal needs. If you, so role modeling behaviors of social support. And then there's four other, uh, other social support behaviors that I think culturally leaders can do daily. Basis. So role modeling, providing emotional support, treating, training, having leaders feel that it's part of their job to be tuned in to the, what their employees, for those employees who want to talk about their non-work lives. Uh, right now we've done studies where leaders don't even say hello in the morning. Uh, besides emotional support, we need them to think about how to support flexible working. That's what I would call instrumental support. And lastly, and most importantly, think about how to creatively think about how to redesign work processes as a win-win to support people's personal lives and get the work done. So role model, uh, instrumental or, or uh, support, emotional support, and then creative support. It's all how you manage people and how you, on a daily basis, send messages about we value you on the job and off the job. That's not a policy. That's how we manage people and how we interact and behave. So one of my papers has looked at work-life specific or work-family-specific social supportive leaders, family supportive behaviors, and that matters so much on a daily basis. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Ellen. It has been such a great pleasure to finally connect with you and, and exchange with you. And we will put uh, in the show notes um, some of your um, contacts and, and websites where people can reach out to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And it was a pleasure to be on your show. And good luck to your listeners with their own work-life uh, dreams. Thank you. 